If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. How are we expected to fix a lack of housing if we don't want to build any? Isn't that how we got into this mess? Here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon, it is 2.08, it is 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton today, welcome to the fun. There's a shot somewhere, and these have since been converted to modern technology, (laughs) um, where uh, I'm a little kid and we used to go to a Christmas tree farm uh, where I grew up uh, near Markham and many, many, many years ago and cut down our own tree. So there's this great shot of uh, me standing in front of the tree, I don't know, four or five years old. And, you know, again, why we take movies of people standing in one spot, I- I'm not sure, but that's what we did it today. And uh, r- later I realized the reason that I was standing there was because behind me my dad was sawing down the tree. And then, of course, we have a film of the tree actually coming down on young me. So there you go. The fun ensues. But boy, you know, that memory comes back every year, whether it haunts me, makes me laugh or cry. Uh, but it is still one of the reasons why every single year we go out and get a real Christmas tree. Uh, an ongoing, Any if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know this is an ongoing thing. Uh, in our house, we got the fake Martha Stewart tree uh, up front. And then in the kitchen, we've got a, uh, a real honking Christmas tree with uh, all of the great gadgets and, and tacky ornaments that you can possibly put on it. That being said, I remember talking over the last couple of years, there's shortages of Christmas trees, uh, nothing new here, and the average cost going up. And boy, it certainly looks like we're heading for the same thing again to talk more about all of this. Shirley Brennan is with us, Executive Director of Canadian Christmas Tree Association and is with us now. Shirley, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. And thanks for having me again. So uh, what is the state of the Canadian Christmas Tree Association at this point? I remember um, there, there's sort of a blip where there's going to be a shortage for the next few years. I've also heard you talking on other media about people just aren't getting into this business as much uh, as they have in the past. What is the, what is the state of the industry right now? So it's a, it's a little bit of both. So we've noticed that when we first started noticing there was a shortage in trees, it was a specific species, which was the Fraser fir. And it's kind of moved down to all kinds of species. The good news is, though, we have all kinds of species. So like you started off with your memory of the Christmas tree farm, although I don't recommend anybody letting the tree fall on them. Um, <laughs> they, the, uh, the, the tree farms have different varieties out there. But we have noticed over the last 10 years that we've lost 20,000 acres of potential Christmas trees. So these were farms that have either sold, retired, or God forbid that the owners have passed away. 20,000 acres is equivalent to 30 million trees. How big an industry is this not only for supplying Canadians, but also around the world? Because this is basically farming. Yes, it is farming. And, and thank you for bringing that point up because, um, it's, it's one of the major points that I, I always want to get out to people that you are coming to a farm or your tree has come from a farm. And so 
we know that in 2015, we were a $15 million industry, a $53 million industry, sorry, in Canada. We are now over $167 million industry in Canada. And in Ontario, we're a $15 million industry. So that would say it's growing, no? Yes, it is. So, and we know that. And that's part of the problem with the demand and 30, 000, 30 million less trees because demand is going up. We've got young people now that are going out um, and buying trees for their new families and their new homes. And we know that young people like the natural products. So they're doing it. We also have people like you that have grown up with a real Christmas tree and you have those memories. So you still do it. And so we have generation after generation of people going out to get a Christmas tree. And it's a real personal experience. We do it for personal reasons, whatever they are. And that's why our demand is going up. Why do you think that, because I remember the time when, uh, you know, it was kind of waning a bit and our Liberty was buying artificial trees and what have you. Uh, and I think this was even happening before the global pandemic. Well, there, where there was a move to go back to the real tree. Do you think that has something to do with the fact that, well, we're really not going out into the wild and chopping down trees. These are farms. This is a cash crop like corn or anything else. Yeah, I think I did my job good. No, I'm, uh, I can't take credit for it, but yes. Um, just that has been what we have really focused on. We used to focus on it. Don't get me wrong. Focus on the environmental aspect of the real tree is important, but that's what we used to really focus on. And then we started looking at it. And, uh, one of our members had brought us a poll that was done in the States where it wasn't solely the most important thing. So we started looking at you know, why, why do people come? And we started educating people on the cash crop. And that's when people, we have less and less people coming to my office or calling my office and, you know, having a discussion with me about cutting down a tree from the forest. And so the education of the public is, is what we focused on. And I think that's really what has um, started the, the trend. I'm going to say it's a trend. And now it's just evolved into, you know, this is a routine that we do every year. Uh, tips for looking for the perfect tree. So know the height of your room. Um, know your <laughs> space, right? And and you laugh, but I can't believe I, I actually had someone once call my office and say, we bought a tree that was too tall and it has marked our ceiling and who is going to come and paint our ceilings. Uh. And I was like, <laughs> you know, so my tip is make sure you know your space. And if you have to take furniture out of your room to get your tree in, that's probably a too big of a tree. So know that space. And then, um, you know, what you want to do is you, you want to get as fresh a tree as you can. So I recommend go to those farms, visit your local farmer. They support your community. We're asking you to support them. And then, you know, it's a really fresh tree. When you bring it home, make sure you make a fresh cut, put it in the water, and it will last anywhere between six and eight weeks. There you have it. Shirley Brennan with us, Executive Director of Canadian Christmas Tree Association. Uh, like everything going up this year, but the tradition continues and is growing. Shirley, as always, thanks for the time. Good luck. Good luck and Merry Christmas. It is uh, the end of November and it is a coming. 
be forewarned. Uh, still to come, feel free, uh, Hammerhead Trivia after the 5 o'clock news. Jump into that. You can also send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text 905-645-3221. All right, StatsCan out with its latest data from 2021, showing everything from how educated we are to how much we're commuting or buying houses. To talk about it all, Ian Lee is with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University with us now. Ian, thanks for your time. I hope you're well. Doing very well. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Canada, uh, one of the, are the most educated out of the whole G7. What does this say about us? And does that shed any light on uh, still the, the employment shortages we seem to have? Right, right. Excellent. Uh, excellent question. I'm going to sound very contradictory because I'm going to say this is uh, both good news and bad news, crazy as that may sound. And and just, just hear me out. Um, we are, as I've said forever and ever, uh, we are one of the most affluent and successful countries in the world. I don't mean that as an ethnocentric, uh, you know, chest thumping or anything. I've been around the world many times uh, teaching. I've been teaching in China for 30 odd years, as you know, I've taught in Poland for 30 odd years, taught in Iran, I've taught in Russia, Ukraine, South America, and so forth. We, we, um, have the you know tenth roughly tenth largest economy in the world. When you look at our income per person, our GDP per capita, in other words, we're somewhere around fifth or sixth. Uh, you know, we can quibble, but it, you know we're extraordinarily affluent country, in part because we have a rule of law system that's decentralized, and we have a very highly educated population. So that is the good news. Although I think that when you start looking at the labor shortages uh, and start drilling down into that data, you start to realize that it's not all good news. Uh, I think that there's, and I, I I realize some professors may want to start throwing rocks at the radio or at the, you know, uh, at the, at the, (laughs) wherever they're getting their sound from uh, what I'm about to say. But uh, I think that, um, there's a, a a shift going on, and there's a mismatch. The and and to put it really bluntly, so I'm not beating around the bush, I, I'm beginning to think that there's too many a high too high a percentage going to university, and not enough going to college. So I'm, this hmm. is not an anti-education statement by any stretch of the imagination. But you look at the at the shortages, and we have shortages in areas where we don't have people going to school very, at least not in large numbers, and yet we have people going to school in large numbers where there's no shortages. So there seems hmm. to be a bit of a mismatch between what the society and the economy needs and what we're doing in the university, in the academy. And I'm not just talking my university. I'm talking the universities across Canada. So good news, but also I think there's problems ahead uh, because of the roughly a million um, uh, job vacancies. And we seem to be having difficulties uh, getting the mix, uh, the, 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 you know, the mix right. Does that mix, as you put it, need to be addressed? I remember Donald Trump once in his early in his presidency, we need another system like Canada, because I guess they use a lottery system, uh, a system like Canada uses. And he he sort of got blown away with with, you know, being this, that and the other. Whereas perhaps if they he pursued it with the, sort of the Canadian connection, he would have got farther. Uh, but that's what we do. We pick the best and the brightest. And not that there's anything wrong with that. But does that no. mix need to be addressed? Well, I, I guess what I'm really trying to say is we need to do even more targeting. Um, we do target 
we have three categories, as everyone knows. We have the uh, so-called economic migrants, um, and then there's refugees, and then there's family reunification, you know, bringing over the grandparents, that sort of thing. We need more economic uh, immigrants, uh, These are, uh, and we need more young economic immigrants uh, with the skills uh, in the areas we need. We need more trades. I mean, there's some yeah. serious shortages in the trades. We have a serious shortage of nurses. And and so I think we're going to have to target, and, and number one, and number two, we're going to have to do a much better job where I think we've fallen down in our country. And this isn't partisan. This is across the country, um, is that we have not done a good job in recognizing the credentials and education of immigrants coming to Canada. We put enormous barriers in front of them saying, well, you got your degree somewhere else. you got to prove to us how good it is. And it can take a very long time. And, you know, nurses, doctors, uh, you name it. And and so I think we're going to have to uh, uh, really improve the way we uh, bring in, in immigrants into Canada and integrate them. And the biggest thing, I think, the biggest issue is this question of credential uh, credentialization or uh, recognizing their 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 um, their their skills and their degrees and the courses and the training that they've taken elsewhere. Uh, something else that stood out in the in this information for me, Ian, was how much commuting numbers were down in large centers, although my wife, who drives into Toronto every so often, would dispute that. Uh, but it seems that tech has had more of an impact in bringing these numbers down than, say, transit or anything else, fuel prices. What are your thoughts? I, I, in fact, that was one of the things I noticed. In fact, I was talking about it today to some people in Ottawa uh, that um, there's going to be knock-on effects uh, far beyond you know uh, the, what's happened that we know about from the pandemic. And I think one of the biggest knock-on effects is it's making us, all of us, employers, employees, re-examine uh, the work, how we structure our work. Uh, do we all have to go to work five days a week? Uh, and I'm not saying let's all go home and stay and hide in our house and and mm -hmm. and just zoom five days a week. I'm saying that I I think we're we're seeing it in industry after industry, where we're saying, well, you know, maybe we can go a hybrid model, or or another alternative is maybe we don't need everyone to come to work five days a week. Maybe we only need some of the people to come to work five days a week. And so we're going to develop, I think, more flexible work arrangements that are more customized to the needs of the employer and to the needs of the employee. Uh, just a quick instance. Let me just throw a quick instance at you. I, I'm not, I've taught now for two and a half years on Zoom and I'm back in the classroom and I can see pluses and minuses of both, you know, and a lot of the younger, uh, certainly students, young people, and, and a, a lot of the younger faculty wanted to go back in the classroom. Hey, that's great. But there's some older faculty who, you know, they're worried because they look at the data and they know they're more uh, a high risk. And so maybe we should develop a more nuanced system saying, OK, if you're above 60, you can raise your hand and choose to teach at home um, uh, as a general uh, assumption. And if you're under 60, well, you've got to demonstrate why you have to, in other words, produce uh, evidence of that you have a, a you know, compromised uh, situation or status. There's, these are the kinds of things we're going to have to do. Another one, very quickly, because uh, I'm really big on this. Sorry, Scott, I'm, I want to use this opportunity. I am a huge believer in telehealth. 
And this idea that we have to go to the doctor and mm. find parking that costs very a lot of money at the hospital, sit for an hour sometimes, an hour and a half in the waiting room. You go in and talk to the doctor and there's no testing involved. They're just talking to you face to face. So you've wasted the whole afternoon. And for a five-minute conversation that could have been held over the telephone. And and so I think that we're going to – we're redoing health care. Yes, mm. you got to go in where you have to be operated on. Yes, we need you to go into the hospital to get certain tests, x-rays, and cardiograms and that kind of thing. But there's many people who go to the – I'm talking the patients who go to the hospital, and there's no need. There's yeah. just an information exchange a verbal information exchange that can be done over the phone. Think of all the gas that'll be saved, the miles and the congestion on the roads and tying up the hospitals and putting older people when they go to the hospital to see their doctor in contact with other sick people, uh, with people that may have illnesses and puts them uh, even further in at risk. So my point is, again, we can redo, restructure our healthcare system. We can do uh, change the way we deliver education. We can change the way we uh, government public servants work. Yeah. Some go to work, yes, but some can work from home. And so I think we're going to see a more nuanced thoughtful approach and yes people will be returning to work but there'll be others that will not be returning to work and they'll work from home and at the aggregate level it's going to mean that there'll be less congestion on the roads because more people will be working from home ian lee associate professor sprott school of business carlton university as always ian thanks for the time be well my pleasure scott thank you whenever you get a chance to go out and about and learn more about this city and surrounding areas rich history i suggest you take advantage of it uh and this saturday afternoon you can while you're out and about take in some local history in dundas uh six historical homes open to the public for a special tour it's sponsored by saint james anglican church on melvin street in dundas and uh christmas market also happened at saint james before the tour to talk more about all of this jillian hendry with us chair of the holiday house tour committee and with us now. Jillian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you, Scott, for giving us the opportunity to tell everybody about the house tour. So uh, tell us about this house tour. What exactly will we see? Okay, well, um, just wanted to tell you that St. James has been hosting this house tour for 46 years. Um, And this year there are six homes on the tour. Um, four of the homes are more historical in, in downtown Dundas. And then there are two homes uh, that are just a little bit newer in the outskirts of Dundas. So people will have the opportunity to uh, tour the homes. They're beautifully decorated for Christmas and um, speak to the homeowners and have fun. How did this get started? How did this come about? Well, I would say that it's a fundraiser for um, St. James. Mm-hmm. Um, that is certainly um, part of it. And um, really, it's a great opportunity to um, for the uh, community to come together to enjoy the various homes that are in Dundas. And I think that lots of people in Dundas consider the house tour as being the start of the Christmas season. How do you explain the interest in this? Is it all history? Is it just people want to get in and see other homes and what they look like and how they're decorated? <laughs> how do you explain the interest? Um, I would say that it's a combination of all those things. I'm sure that there are people that go for a walk and see the beautiful homes of Dundas and think, gee, I'd really like to see inside that house. Um, I've been a greeter at the homes for a long time. Um, 
15 years personally, and people um, are often renovating their homes themselves, so they want to get some ideas. Um, some people enjoy the mm. history of Dundas, and, um, and for some people, it's just really a fun outing. Um, I'd like to add, too, that there are lots of things happening at the church, too, and that we are going to have the Christmas market that uh, opens at 11 a.m., and also um, uh, ticket holders can go um, into the church parlor and they can have tea and shortbread and take a break um, in beautiful teacups and fine china. And also uh, there'll be all sorts of Christmas baking on sale as well. And also the church hosts an art show every year. So in the church sanctuary, there'll be an artist who's going to be displaying their work. So it's uh, lots of things to do. How do you arrive at these houses? How do you pick these houses? How do they become available for you to tour? Well, that's one of the most challenging things to actually um, for um, homeowners to be willing to open their house and have 500, 600 people walking <laughs> through. So we sometimes it's word of mouth. Some, sometimes people call and volunteer themselves. Um, we have a team of people that actually do cold calls, um, you know, in the area. But uh, every year we come up with each at least five or six homes where people are very generous and opening them up to the public. And they know that the funds that we are raising are going to be going for a good cause in Dundas. Jillian Henry with us, chair of the Holiday House Tour Committee. You can find out more at stjamesdundas.ca. That's stjamesdundas.ca. Good luck this year, Jillian. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate us having the time. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, just before we went to air, we learned that Christy McVie, uh, singer-songwriter for Fleetwood Mac, had passed away at the age of 79. She died peacefully at a hospital in the company of her family. Their statement read, to talk more about all of this, Eric Alper is with us, music publicist and commentator, and here now, Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, everything's all right. A little, very sad over this one. Um, um, you know, you, you and I have talked a lot about when, when you know, we, we are now officially in the era of our beloved classic rockers passing hmm. away um, with, um, you know, with a lot of commonness. And, and this is what it's going to be like. You know, 79 is very young, but it's still a, a long life considering all the things that she's done. Mm. And and in Fleetwood Mac, obviously Lindsay uh, Lindsay Buckingham and uh, Stevie Nicks getting center attention most of the time. She was more a quiet player. She that's exactly what she wanted, which is I think why she lasted in the band as long as she has from nineteen seventy seventy one to about nineteen ninety eight, and then kind of reformed um, with the band back in two thousand and fourteen for another eight years. But she seemed to have this very British attitude about everything. Um, she didn't want to be in the gossip papers. She certainly didn't want to be in the news every single day. Even though that during that whole era of of rumors and tusk between 1976 mm. and 1979 when they were just by far the biggest band on the planet um it just seemed like everybody was marrying everybody else and then yeah. divorcing everybody else and having affairs with everybody else even the single people in the band were divorcing themselves just to you know just to to, to kind of play in that but it 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 
seemed like it never really um it never really suited her to mess with the formula of Stevie Nicks, you go in the front. Uh, Lindsay Buckingham, you can go in the front. You guys can have your giant arguments in the media every single week whenever we go on tour. I'm going to just relax and enjoy being a songwriter. And that's exactly what she did. Obviously, a lot of emotional ups and downs over the course of this band, as you just mentioned. Did they ever get to a a place of peace and all return together? Uh, She came back to the band in 2014. Did they ever find that peace? I don't think never on the right time because it just seemed like whenever things were back to normal, whenever things got calm, they would announce a tour and then suddenly somebody would say something in an interview leading up to the tour or while they were on the road that just brought up old wounds. Lindsey Buckingham would go do an interview about a song that he wrote 40 years ago, say the wrong word. And all of a sudden, Stevie Nicks doesn't even want to be in the same building as him anymore. (laughs) Um, There's just times when, you know, look, I don't want to hang out with my exes. Imagine night after night after night, you are singing songs that you wrote about the person that is literally four feet away from you about how you broke their heart and how you never you know, did this and you always did this. And you said that, and you know, meanwhile, John McVie and and Christine McVie who were since divorced are just trying to play their instruments. And, uh, you know, part of it, part of seeing them live was just seeing all the drama up close, you know, like every time that (laughs) Lindsay Buckingham might've looked at Stevie Nicks, you know, with a side eye, it's like, Ooh, does that mean something? And meanwhile, you know, Christine McVie is just, you know, she's singing her song. She's singing don't stop and everywhere and little lies and, and you make love and fun and all the songs that brought her, you know, the love and attention around the world. Uh, obviously a band that dates each other is going to end up splitting and either loving or <laughs> hating each other, but was it obviously visible on stage? I mean, we know what it's like now with video cameras and stuff. I mean, would you see one roll the eyes of the other? Would it get that bad? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you would you would see um you would see songs um yeah, especially during the the, the whenever oh, no. they were singing songs of rumors and uh Stevie Nicks would be singing, you know, landslide or singing a song and kind of looking over at Lindsay Buckingham and Lindsay would not look at her in the eye or when Lindsay Buckingham is singing go your own way. It's really a song about how, you know, Stevie Nicks just wants to shack up with somebody else that's not her husband at the time. And so he would sing that literally to her. And yeah. so I, that stuff, you know, there's there's such a psychological book written about. Yeah, I don't want to know about the gossip. I want to know, like, the psyche that goes on behind all of that stuff. And despite all of that, it created some great product, some great art. Sometimes it's the only way, right? You know, when you and I talk about, you know, does, uh, do artists need to be damaged yeah. or, or depressed in order to create great art? This is the, this is exactly what they're talking about. They're talking about dreams and secondhand news and don't stop and songbird and the chain and all of these great songs from that era. Um, were written at their lowest points in their time. Um, and, you know, obviously the drugs didn't help when they were even going to thank their their cocaine dealer in the liner notes of, of rumors, but he got killed before the album came out. So they thought that that wouldn't oh, be man. a good idea anyway. But that's what it was like. They were just zipping on their own planet. They were the biggest rock stars on the planet. They were some of the most beautiful people in music, making gobs of money, touring the world, doing whatever they wanted to do and who was going to say no to them not many people 
Eric Alper, publicist, music commentary on the life of Fleetwood Mac and the passing of Christine McVie, 79 years old, uh, earlier today. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. All right. We have uh, talked at length uh, in regard to the Chinese Communist Party on this show and uh, what appears to be ever increasing influence in uh, Canada, whether it's politics or uh, any sort of policy making and such. And now um, thoughts, concerns, accusations that uh, the Chinese Communist Party has influenced elections in some way or at least tried to over the last little while. Uh, That, along with other issues pertaining to China has certainly made the federal liberals change their tone uh, a great deal. I would say a 180 compared to what they were uh, only a, a couple of years ago where um, they seemed to almost show an affection, uh, the prime minister did for China, and being one of the last five eyes to uh, eventually decide, no, uh, that Huawei did not belong in our 5G system. Uh, now the tone has greatly changed. Why is that? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director Abbott. Costata and with us now, Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott, I'm doing well. How do you explain the shift in tone? It almost looks as if the prime minister is uncomfortable talking about this. Um, I think the, the government is, I have no proof of this, but I hear a lot of chatter and you've also seen this in the mainstream press. So call me a copycat at worst here. I think, excuse me, Scott, the government's getting a little bit of pressure from the Five Eyes allies uh, who are saying, you know, Canada in different ways are saying this to Canada, you got to up your game when it comes to China. Um, I think they feel that Canada, perhaps of the that group of five and, and other allies as well, um, have not maybe been as forceful or determined when it's come to, to dealing with China. So I think it's partially that. I think there's more domestic pressure now, too, um, from uh, Chinese uh, Chinese people in Canada who would like to see Canadian the Canadian government speak more forcefully. And I think uh, Polyev also knows it's probably a... And there's politics in, in, in aligned with all of that, and uh, it gets into different writings in this country and more uh, urban settings where the Chinese vote can be influential, Chinese-Canadian vote can be influential, that if they're not tough on China, that also impacts them directly, domestically in the next election. Is Canada paying lip service, or are they actually changing their opinion, their policy? I, I don't know, right? We don't really know what's going on. We don't really know what our spy game is like, what our military game is like. Um, we're certainly, at least publicly, trying to show we're doing more. I mean, this uh, frigate that's going to be you know, going around the South China Sea and elsewhere in that region, great. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> one, one Canadian frigate is not going to throw the Chinese off their, uh, their forceful global agenda of, of dominance, um, but it's better than not, I suppose. And more importantly, it adds to um, the mix with our allies who we need to carry the, the freight and the weight for us on so many other issues. And more money for spying is is, uh, is good. And I think there's some more money for disinformation in, in there. But, uh, you know, I think we're still, Scott, uh, playing catch up on this. 
Uh, RCMP investing, uh, investigating election interference in the next, uh, in the last election, rather. How deep is this? Uh, um, the prime minister said he has uh, been shown no sign of in, of interference or that would have then qualified that by saying that would have changed the outcome. What does that say? Uh, the jury's still out on it. Uh, I, I, I mean, Commissioner Lucky, who herself has been a source of controversy, not on this issue, but because of other leadership challenges that she's had around the convoy and the mass shooting in, in Nova Scotia, came out publicly this week, I believe, in response to an inquiry and said that, yes, there is some investigation. You're never going to hear more from the RCMP on that, nor should we at this juncture until, until something happens. That could be the thing that's most likely to be lip service. But again, I'm firmly of the belief that whatever we're doing to counter China's influence is happening below the surface. And we're never really going to know the full details of what that is uh, until well after the fact or something significant happens. Uh, is it fair to say that if there is some sort of influence, it's going to um, it, it's going to contribute to the Liberal Party as opposed to the Conservatives? Is that fair, or is that out of line? I, uh, I know I, I wouldn't be in the place to make that broad sweeping position yet. Look, the Conservatives have always talked a tough game about China, and certainly Harper um, had a few words previously with the Chinese leadership when he was Prime Minister. But did that change anything? No. Um, I think the conservatives, the way I would answer the question is conservatives will seize upon it as a demonstration that, you know, Justin Trudeau is not as tough as he should be in, in and around areas where he needs to be tough for Canada. Are we going back towards the stance that Harper had? I read that somewhere today. I think we're going to a harder line. It's about time. Uh, I think, though, I mean, it's easier to do that now that the two Michaels have uh, have come home to Canada uh, and the Huawei decision has been rendered. Um, but I think we need to be consistent in this. Look, it, it's still, we still do need, where Trudeau is right and where Harper also engaged in this, as have other leaders, we still need to trade with China. Um, you know, we, we still need to, that particular opportunity, but we have to be more firm in protecting ourselves and not letting um, economic opportunity blinders cloud security vulnerabilities. Uh, Want to change topics to the convoy? Uh, been a while since the inquiry. Uh, how has that panned out? Uh, people digesting all of this. What are your thoughts uh, a few days out of this? Jeez, you and I have been in news too long. If a while is Friday. <laughs> I mean, yeah, really. <laughs> the, the prime minister's testimony was uh, was on Friday, and to be fair to him, I think he did pretty well, better than most people mm-hmm. expected. Uh, I think they, they being the government, helped themselves on the public opinion front, though they didn't need that much help because, as we have always talked about, there have been seventy percent of Canadians who thought the convoy was wrong and supported the government measures to to deal with all of that. The question, I guess, that. Still, it's not clear if it's resolved, and we won't know uh, until Justice Rouleau rules on it. The head of the, the inquiry is whether you know the legal definition was met. The prime minister made the case um, of saying that he felt it was, and he felt if he didn't act, there would be even more significant um, harm to Canada. Acting because you're worried about something that might happen, while that may be noble, may not meet the legal threshold. But the the chatter is they probably will get a pass, 
but there will be numerous conditions and 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 uh, indicators that are probably added to the act about looking at it for future use. All right, I uh, can't let you go without asking you about Alberta. Are they going to leave us? Uh, what's going on here? Is this about um, you know a premier that has quite ambitious goals, or is it the same old argument that nobody's paying attention to the West? Domestic electoral politics, by and large, right uh, in Alberta, uh, Ottawa's one big fat pinata to whack uh daniel smith as you know has had trouble getting her feet uh she's got an election coming in may she wants the prime minister to take the bait to help her so far the prime minister said he's not overly concerned about this by and large it's largely politics but there is and i think it'd be wrong to dismiss there is regional discontent of course but right now i think the prime mover is Daniel Smith's political future and looking for a fight with Ottawa to help her electoral chances in the spring. Tim Powers with us, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Take care, buddy. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Bonnie Lisk, Ontario's Auditor General, released her annual report today, included audits and COVID-19 related contracts, procurement, all that sort of stuff, as well as Ontario Lottery and Gaming, uh, highway planning, uh, just to mention uh, a little bit of it. And to give us a briefing, Colin DeMello is with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He is with us now. Colin, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So what stands out for you in this Auditor General's uh, report, Colin? Obviously, it's usually usually the bear of bad news. What stands out for you today? Well, the biggest thing is about uh, the vaccine rollout in Ontario. And I think that, you know, it's important to a lot of people because, you know, every single person in this province uh, would have wanted to get a COVID-19 vaccine if they didn't actually get a COVID-19 vaccine. And we all remember what it was like in, in you know, December of 2020 when those vaccines finally reached the shores of Ontario and how everyone wanted to get one of those doses in their arms. Um, the Auditor General found that the province's rollout was really, you know, discombobulated. It was really uh, haphazard, a bit chaotic. And, and the reason why was, you know, something that we had been reporting on right province instead of choosing to have a centralized rollout of the vaccine distribution they decided to ask all of the 34 public health units in ontario to come up with their own plan and that meant you know you had different strategies in different regions targeting different groups of people and prioritizing different areas as well and as a result uh the auditor had found that you know thousands of people especially the tech savvy ones immediately jumped on and started booking at a number of places they would oh, go man, vaccine yeah. shopping is what she would call it we i mean we all remember that right trying to find yeah. a pharmacy that would actually uh give us that dose but the consequence of that was the fact that thousands of people would make these appointments and then they wouldn't show up because they hmm. would go to option a and they also had option b and c available and so the province said like more than two hundred and twenty thousand of uh, doses unfortunately went to waste all because People were making multiple appointments and weren't actually showing up to them. So that was one huge takeaway uh, coming out of this. Uh, and there was a lot of chatter about this way back when about getting it into the pharmacies because they were going to be everywhere. Or there's one in every block or what have you. But we found that's perhaps not the most efficient way to do it. That was where a great deal of the waste was, like you said, for double booking, triple booking of appointments. 
Yeah, well, and and you know when it came to actually wasted vaccines, like Ontario, uh, Ontario didn't do too bad. About nine percent of the vaccines that Ontario received as of this year were actually wasted, right? But but the auditor found that the ma- vast majority of that waste was actually happening at pharmacies. Um, pharmacies mm. were responsible for seventy percent of the w- waste. In fact, you know, on average, any individual pharmacy. Two out of every 10 doses was going in the trash. And, and that was, you know, for a variety of reasons, one of which was because people were making appointments and then weren't showing up. And pharmacies may have not had the refrigeration units in place to actually keep those vaccine vials cold enough uh, to last long enough. Uh, they also found, though, that a couple of private sector companies that were tasked by the Ford government to start targeting groups of people with vaccines, there was a lot of wastage there as well. There was one specifically called called FH Health, um, they wasted up to 57% of the doses that they received. And these are doses that, you know, remember, were paid for by the federal government. So these are paid for by taxpayer dollars and then transferred to Ontario. In fact, during two months, FH Health wasted more than 3,200 doses. And the auditor found that over the course of four days, FH Health actually wasted 488 doses but only delivered 95 doses, meaning they wasted more than they were actually injecting into people's arms. And, and you know, that is one of the things that the auditor points out as, uh, as as egregious. And she said the province didn't really write it into the contract that, hey, if you waste doses, you have to, you know, pay back some of the money or you're going to be in breach of your contract. In fact, there is no real mechanism, it seems like, for the province to recoup any of its costs. And that's your money and my money. Uh, any suggestions of if this was to ever happen again, how we do it more efficiently, or is that as uh, still yet to be figured out? Well, I mean, you know, if we were to do this again, uh, the, the the province obviously would have a better or a different game plan because they would have had the the strategy kind of already written, and and you know, the um, auditor general is warning the province that they have to prepare for these types of things, right? So, as an example, during the height of the pandemic, uh, Ontario was buying as much personal protective equipment as it could, right? Specifically, those mm-hmm. N95 masks. Well, now. We have too many. <laughs> We've put yeah. in enough orders to have about 100 million N95 masks. This is an $81 million order. So by the year 2030, some of these are going to expire. And the Auditor General said, well, by 2030, the demand for N95s is not really going to keep up with the supply of N95 masks. So what they're telling the province now is, Start preparing for what you're going to do with these masks, where you're going to distribute them, because you don't want to be in a situation that we have been in the past before, where we're throwing out this equipment that taxpayers have paid for. So, you know, you know, on one hand, they probably would take a look at what's happened over the last couple of years and learn some lessons. But then on the other hand, you know, the Auditor General today is giving them lots of warnings of, on what's going to happen in the future and how to prevent waste of, you know, these valuable resources. Uh, Bonnie Lissick, Ontario's Auditor General, releasing her annual report today. We've only touched on vaccination. Uh, for more, make sure you're watching Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News tonight. For more on all of this, Colin, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
we're hearing more and more about uh, Chinese, uh, the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party interfering with uh, not only Canadian elections but just other uh, policy policy making and decision making uh, within uh, Canada, and specifically as well uh, ha- harassing Canadian Chinese citizens who are here and not supporting the homeland. Uh, in regard to the election campaign, the Prime Minister said uh, he hasn't been given any evidence to show that there was any sort of uh, interference that would have changed the, that he qualified it and said would change the outcome in any significant way, which makes you ask the question, at what point does it become significant? Uh, let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst with us now. Phil, thanks for the time again. Hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing well. Your thoughts on uh, the Prime Minister saying he hasn't been presented with anything as yet, but then qualified it by saying of any significance to change the outcome. I, how do you how do you react to that? Is that supposed to make us feel comfortable? Oh boy. Uh, so first and foremost, Scott, it's important that I say that I never worked the China task at the service. As you know, I was a terrorist terrorism specialist, but I have a, a bit of an idea. I had colleagues who worked on it. Uh, it uh, beggars disbelief that, A, he said he never received a briefing, which if he didn't, there's a serious problem in, in upper echelons of government that the PM's not getting intelligence briefings because intelligence is there and it's being passed on. And it, I think it belies a, a feeling that's been in this country for a very long time, not just with this government, but other governments that don't take this threat seriously. Uh, you know, CSIS has been advising about this, God, for, for 20, 25 years. And for it still to be not acknowledged and not treated as seriously, you know, and as you said, what does significant mean? Well, that's a great question. Uh, really worries me as a former intelligence analyst, and it should worry Canadians that our government doesn't think that the interference by a, a hostile state, which is what China is, in our free, fair, and democratic elections is not seen as a threat to national security. So does it become significant once it actually does affect the outcome of elections? And how do we figure that out? Well, we don't. That's the whole point, is that, you yeah. know, take any riding in Canada, you look at the results. Do we know sort of after the fact how many votes were cast in a certain direction based on some kind of an influence peddling, veiled or thinly veiled threats made against people? We don't know that because there's, you don't examine each vote and say, well, you know, 15 percent of the votes and I'll, I'll pick you know Saskatoon just uh, randomly were, were, were linked to uh, foreign interference. There's no way of telling that. So, no, you, you don't know the fact. But the mere reality that they did make efforts in this regard irrespective of whether it affected anyone writing, that's the concern. Not the fact that it, you know, changed writings one way or the other, but we're allowing a state to do that in our country. That should be the concern for Canadians. Uh, RCMP say they are investigating. What does that mean? Are you convinced that will, will in some way take us on a path that may lead to a solution or at least uh, more clarity? I'm not convinced that anything anybody does, CSIS, the RCMP, anyone on a national security level is going to affect this government in any way. I mean, as I said, we've been doing this, and I'm using the royal we here because, you know, my colleagues at CSIS have been doing this for decades, and we're not getting a response. We're not getting any any concern by the government. So is it sort of wallpaper, you know, because it's now the soup du jour. You're talking about it. I'm talking about it. It's on the CBC. It's on various news sites in Canada. So it's getting some attention. And then you know, three days from now, it'll be, uh, how about that World Cup score? Maybe the Leafs will make, you know, win the Cup <laughs> this year. <laughs> are, I'm, are sorry, the, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being facetious, but it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to leave the headlines soon, and then nobody will care again. Do the, does the federal government still think, I mean, obviously, uh, we buy a lot of stuff from uh, China. Uh, it may be a greatly one-way trade, but there's still trade there. Is still China considered the golden goose? We don't want to offend them. Is that the position of the feds, or is there more of an affection here than we realize? 
It's really difficult for me to answer that. I would say, and this is just supposition on my my part, Scott, I think they're, they are afraid of uh, killing the golden goose, as you put it. China has threatened nations that criticize their politics, whether it's on Hong Kong or Tibet or Xinjiang or whatever, or COVID policy. China likes to throw economic muscle around, and it has a lot of economic muscle to throw around, and their governments are, are, are leery, and we've seen governments reverse themselves when threatened by China. You know, we're going to stop ex- exports or imports of exports. Y or Z, if you don't keep quiet on certain issues, I, I think that's what's driving it is that, you know, I don't know what percentage of our economy is tied to China. It's probably pretty high. And I think, you know, the uh, the, the bean counters not all realize that. And hence, we've been very reluctant to criticize the, the, the regime in Beijing. It hasn't slowed down Australia at all, though. Well, let's just say that Australia has strength in certain parts of the body that we that we like, Scott. I'll hmm. give one thing to Australians is, you know, um, I work with them a lot. They're part of the Five Eyes, which is the sort of, you know, the Anglo Club of Intelligence um, agencies. And they have a lot more courage than we do. And, and they have a lot more at stake, too. But it's, it, show, it, it, it comforts me that at least one of our allies is going to stand up for the Chinese. And it'd be nice to see Ottawa stand up for the Chinese once in a while, too. So is this changing the tone? Because we're hearing a, even, and I'll be honest, from my perspective, the Prime Minister looks very uncomfortable when he's talking about this because he's definitely changed his tone. Um, are we going to see more than just lip service here? Or are we going to see a change in policy? Uh, he's talking about the Indo-Pacific strategy and such. Is he playing both sides of the fence here? What are your thoughts? Hope springs eternal. I mean, you always hope that people are going to get the message finally and take some action to, you know, uh, act in concert with our allies, maybe follow the lead of the Australians and get a little tougher on China. Does he feel uncomfortable? Maybe the discomfort comes from the realization that the jig is up and that his 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 claim to never have received briefings is probably false and that people are calling him on it. Maybe that's why he feels uncomfortable. But I don't know, Scott. Um Betting on what politicians do tomorrow is a, is a, is a you know, it's a it's a rogues contest. I, I wouldn't want to lose any money on it or any Bitcoin for that matter. And uh, where this goes from here is a, is a great question. I'm sure I'm sure we'll be talking about it in the future. and we'll be, we'll be, you know, rehashing what happened and what didn't happen. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, fascinating to chat with you. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. Dwayne Pride is with us, PhD, Professor of Political Science, Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies, Mount Royal University, and is with us now. Dwayne, thanks for your time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing great, Scott. I'm guessing you're a busy guy this day, trying to explain uh, to the rest of us what's going on. What exactly is going on in Alberta? How do you explain it to the rest of the country? So during the summer, during the United Conservative Party leadership race, Daniel Smith, uh, who ends up winning and is now premier, there were two major aspects to her campaign. Uh, One was about fighting COVID restrictions and and COVID vaccine mandates. Uh, The second was this idea of a sovereignty act, and it was a way of preventing federal intrusion into uh, provincial jurisdiction, largely as it related to oil and gas, but also as it related to to guns and, and other items. And so she promised that there would be this sovereignty act that would allow the provincial government in Alberta to uh, determine if federal legislation did intrude into provincial jurisdiction, and then it could ignore it. It could not enforce it. It could violate it. It could nullify it, whatever term you wanted to use. And so there had been a lot of speculation about what the actual bill would look like, because during that leadership campaign, 
four of her leadership rivals held a press conference and they said the Sovereignty Act would violate the rule of law, would be unconstitutional, and would lead to investor chill and a capital flight out of Alberta. Well, three of those four uh, people are now in her cabinet, uh, hmm. who now must ostensibly be supporting this, the, the Sovereignty Act. Um, and so that's the one basket. But there's a second basket that I never thought would come into this, and it gives extraordinary powers to the cabinet uh, that allows them to amend legislation to protect Alberta's interests without the oversight or the approval of the legislature. It re reduces the aspect of judicial review, uh, where affected groups can go to the courts for relief. Uh, instead of it being within a six-month window, that window has been reduced to 30 days. And then the third is that they could direct provincial entities, not individuals, not private companies, but provincial entities to ignore and violate federal law. But they're using such a broad definition of a provincial entity that would include health authorities and schools and post-secondary institutions and municipalities and police forces and organizations that receive government grants and organizations that are regulated by the government. That's pretty much the entire province. Um, and so I think that this greatly erodes Alberta democracy um, and uh, is, is very worrisome. And so it's almost like in order to fight Ottawa, and there's still a lot of opposition to Ottawa. There she is on public opinion. But in order to do so, we have to weaken our own democracy to do so. Is any, that, I think, is very problematic. Is any of this legal? I mean, is any of this even possible? Is this a moot point? Uh, we'll, we'll have to see um, if there's any, even a preemptive court challenge on this, because I don't think it is legal. Uh, typically, when there are disputes between the federal government, the provincial government, let's say over the carbon tax or a national securities regulator, the, the courts are the arbiters of those disputes, not the provincial government or the federal government arbitrating those disputes. So the question is, will a challenge get launched just with the introduction of Bill 1, or do they have to wait to see if this passes, what it looks like, if it's going to be amended. Because I read Bill 1 yesterday, and I already spotted some typos in it. So it's got to be amended in some fashion. And typically, bills look different after they go through all three readings than they do when they're first submitted. Is, so. this, is this for you, Dwayne, about provincial overreach that you didn't expect? Or does this speak to a bigger problem of just addressing Western alienation from Ottawa? Uh, it's a combination of the two. So Western alienation exists. Um, the previous premier, who coincidentally resigned his seat yesterday, Jason Kenney, did fight a series of court challenges, did launch some, some agencies to fight the federal overreach, did use the bully pulpit, used a lot of mechanisms that are uh, traditional tools. Um, and Smith's view and her supporters were that didn't work. So they have to push the envelope. So I think this says something about federalism in this country, but it, it's also the anti-democratic element within Alberta. It's almost like to fight Ottawa, we have to erode our own democracy. And, and that's a problem. What about Kenny stepping down? What does that say? 
Well, I mean, it was clear he wasn't going to sit with any premier. Once you've been the boss, it, it's yeah. tough to sit in the back benches or even as a cabinet minister. So I think that is part of it. But the other is he was very critical of Daniel Smith and her Sovereignty Act. He called it, it would make us a laughingstock in the province. Uh, so, And he has not spoken to Smith. There was no transition between the two of them. So he didn't even show up to the legislature yesterday. He simply tweeted out his, his resignation letter. Um, so there is no love loss there. Uh, what is interesting is one of the reasons that, that Kenny was driven out was a feeling that he didn't listen to caucus enough. He didn't listen to the MLAs who were elected in Alberta. Well, what Smith has introduced reduces the role of MLAs even more so. So we'll have to see if anger at Trump, or sorry, not Trump, anger at Trudeau um, will mask over some of these deficiencies, major deficiencies in the bill. How are Albert- there is clear anger at Trudeau. How are Albertans reacting to this at first blush? So I... <laughs> I mean, obviously, the NDP is lighting their hair on fire, and, and, and you know, the, the media has come out, and, and academics like myself, and law professors, members of the public. But that's not who I'm looking for. I'm looking for people like Travis Taves, the current finance minister, and Brian Jean, another minister, who were the ones who opposed the Sovereignty Act in September. How does this mesh with them now? Um, how do people who criticize the Emergencies Act as being a dictatorial move by Trudeau, despite uh, the safeguards and the and the um, uh, the guardrails with the Emergencies Act, like six weeks of public testimony and an inquiry, how do they feel about this now? So it's going to be what's the reaction of conservatives? And I should say, polling has shown that Smith has not received a bump. She is still trailing Rachel Notley by, by double digits. Um, what is the public view on this, and, and what is the caucus view from conservatives? Uh, what about the reaction from the prime minister? How is that sitting with Albertans? So I did see some initial comments this morning from him, and he said um, that they do have concerns with the bill. But then he pivoted and he said, but so do many Albertans, because I don't think Trudeau wants to get into a fight with Smith. But it is clear that Smith wants Trudeau to intervene because she needs an external enemy. And Rachel Notley is popular. Justin Trudeau is not. And so I think she has almost dared him to use the disallowance clause in the Constitution, which would allow the federal government to nullify provincial legislation. It was put in one of the fact sheets from the government on the Sovereignty Act, which was a bit interesting, and she raised it again in her press conference yesterday. So I think she wants to see a reaction from Trudeau. Dwayne Bratt with us, PhD, Professor of Political Science, Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies, Mount Royal University, a fascinating time in Alberta politics. Thank you, Dwayne. We'll talk again. Yep. Thanks, Scott. See you later. All right. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Coming up right after the six o'clock news, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, although you interrupted my game of solitaire there on my phone. So I hope this is good. I'm really sorry. Were you winning? <laughs> Were you losing? How are you doing there? <laughs> I can never tell until it actually happens. It's a, it's a mystery right. game to me. Anyway, glad to be here. All right.
Uh, uh, glad to have you here. Uh, I'm not sure whether I want to talk about Team Canada and our chances of beating Morocco tomorrow or if I want to talk about uh, uh, issues like housing, that it seems there is no possible solution. Nothing is going to happen. Nope. Nobody's going to move forward on any of this. Uh, I just saw an interesting report uh, that said uh, Hamilton City Council says no thank you to Bill 123, which tells me in exactly four years from now we'll be in exactly the same place we are today yeah I'm not uh, sure, it amazes it, i'm not sure they were asked whether whether they wanted yeah, it or not yeah. but nonetheless yes their point is well taken uh but, you know and whether it's health care or housing and i go back to you know the election every single political party greens libs uh ndp conservative we're all going to build a million houses whatever it is uh-huh. uh, same thing we're going to fix health care and then when it's time to do the heavy lifting and do the changing people just go back to their old ways people just do the old same stuff over and over again and somehow expecting a different result it's amazing we can have these conversations we can scream at uh, uh, and, I, and I guess when there's a need for development, there's also a concern that this will be exploited like everything sure, else sure. is, Developers whether it's are payments. A bad word. Developers are a bad I, word around here. I know. I'm just finding this so frustrating, Scott, that it seems that we have lost the ability to find a solution, which is usually in the center. How do you address this right. on the extremes? So let, let me, at the risk of being repetitive, because I wrote this in The Spectator a few months ago, and so, you know, it's already out there, but... The problem you have in this city right now with housing, with growing the housing stock, is that you had a city council that decided, based on a survey that may or may not have been reflective of the entire city, it was a small sample and it was a you know, designed, it was, it was a targeted survey to various people, but nonetheless, they decided we're not going to expand the urban boundary. So we're not going to grow outward. Nobody wants to grow outward, apparently. So then if you follow story after story after story, every time somebody wants to a developer, every time they want to build a high rise, all the people in the neighborhood scream and yell and say, you can't build that. It's going to block the sun. It's going to make traffic impossible, blah, blah, blah. So we don't want to build outwards. We don't want to build upwards. So then they came up with the idea, well, let's have urban densification. Let's allow homeowners to turn their house into a fourplex or a threeplex or whatever else. And all the neighbors screamed, yeah, do that elsewhere. But I don't want my street having all the houses now with four times the number of people and cars. So we won't build out. We won't build up. We won't build in. So unless we're going to build <laughs> underground bunkers, where's our option? Uh, you know, I had somebody uh, send me a note once and talk about, you know, filling in infield areas. And I understand this. They said that initially, you know, what I was talking about is when they build neighborhoods now, there's a nice balance. Brand new neighborhoods usually have big homes, small homes, semis, townhouses, low density, high rise, all joined with bike paths and trails and all that sort of neat stuff. But the problem is he was explaining to me was these neighborhoods are already established or already built. So then how do you dump something in there that wasn't des- it wasn't designed for, it? which I totally get. Um, But again, it seems that we're dealing with this on extremes. There's no happy medium. It might work here. It may not work here. Uh, And again, it's just bang, 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 bang. And I really get aggravated when I hear urban sprawl as if it's some sort of poison. And, you know, I'm thinking... These are people's homes. These are people's houses where they're raising families, where they're raising kids, where they're going to the supermarket, where they're going to the hockey arena, where they're going to the movie theater, wherever. I mean, they just talk like urban sprawl, like it's some sort of poison it's, and that there's absolutely no way to do it smartly. Scott, and, and not even thinking that this is where people live. 
Yeah, I've got no look. If someone wants to be against expanding the urban boundary, I'm I'm fine with them having that opinion. That's that's their opinion. They're allowed to have one, just sure. like you or I are. Here's the where I have a beef with this. When the whole thing was going on with the last council about block the urban boundary, if you drove around in parts of Ancaster, parts of Stony Creek, parts of Flamborough, parts of Waterdown, there were signs up saying no sprawl. These are people who are all living in areas that were built yeah. because of sprawl. If you live yes. in a home in those areas, you should, but it, it is so hypocritical for you to then say, yeah. I got my house, I'm good, I got my backyard, I got my house, but no one else should because that would be bad for the environment. I'm okay. I got in before it was real sprawl. I'm, I'm only sprawl light. Yeah. Uh, come on. If you're, de- if you're living in an apartment downtown, I have all the time in the day to listen to you say, I don't like urban sprawl. But if you're living in one of those areas that used to be farmland, you have no leg to stand on whatsoever. Not even a little bit. Sorry. And really, what's the alternative? Where are we living if we're not building homes? It's just bizarre. All well, right, we we're out of time. Giant, we build condos, and does everybody yeah, want to live yeah. in a condo? Clearly, yeah, the answer to that po- is no. Especially in a post-pandemic world. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up next after the 6 o'clock news. Thank you, Scott. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. It usually is the silent ones that have the biggest impact on everything. Rest in power, Christine Levy. You'll be missed. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.